Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the Joni Mitchell Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Scott Johnson. Today's episode is a very special episode of the Joni Mitchell Podcast. The guest is Mark Isham, who's a wonderful trumpeter and synthesizer who's both toured and recorded with Joni multiple times. It was a great conversation. Please check out his website, which is spelled I-S-H-A-M. That's his last name, dot com. Uh, You can Google him. He really has such an amazing body of work. You should really be checking him out. And if you're a Joni fan, you've already heard him many times playing on Joni recordings. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That really does help. Um, My New York friends, I am performing at Rockwood Music Hall this coming Monday, which is Monday, May 14th of 2018 at 10 p.m. I know it's hard to come out to a show on a Monday night at 10 p.m., but um, it's going to be a really fun show, and I hope to see you there. You can get tickets in advance or get them at the door. Uh, Visit my website, www.zacharyscottjohnson.com. Zachary is Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, and Scott only has one T, S-C-O-T. We're ready to start the show. So when was the first time that you started working with Joni? Actually, if you don't mind, like, how did that kind of come to be? I assume maybe through mutual friends or something, but how did you kind of come to work with Joni? Well, I think it must have come... I've been thinking about this, and there was a, a concert that I played with Joni before my longer period of engagement. This, the, the main period of time that I worked with Joni was through Larry Klein. Uh-huh. I'd known Larry Klein for a long time, and he admired what I did, and he brought me in as a trumpet player. But, and that happened, oh, in the late late nineties, I guess, mid nineties, starting. But in the late eighties, I was asked by, and here's I'm going to be a little foggy in memory. I don't really know how, but somehow through, I guess, my Wyndham Hill work, um, known as a synthesist. Uh, and maybe my relationship with ECM, um, I got asked to replace Lyle Mays on a concert that he couldn't appear at. This oh, okay. period when she was working with Lyle. And <laughs> I accepted the job, um, but of course I was just a complete nervous wreck. I mean, Lyle is a consummate piano player and is just a fantastic musician and a great performer. And I am, at best, sort of a synthesist that kind of knows a little bit about playing keyboards, but I'm not a keyboard player and I'm not a pianist. So I went in having to sort of fill the Lyle shoes really much more as just a textural guy, a guy who understands how to make cool sounds, but not really being able to play all that fabulous, (laughs) you know, uh, jazz-based music that Lyle plays. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember doing it, I remember having a fabulous time, and just because it was that period when she did Shadows and Light and uh, some of those songs and it was just such a well just a fabulous experience for me because I really admired that period with, with Pat Metheny and Lyle with her and uh, so it was really sort of a dream for me to be involved in that I just kind of, but it was a one shot thing and then uh, she carried on and uh, I met her briefly in the rehearsal and the concert it was here in LA it was outdoors I believe quite a, a wonderful afternoon and then years later Larry called and said uh, you know we want your trumpet and then that started the whole longer relationship with her right as a trumpet as a trumpet player yeah right 
cool. What is, um, yeah, okay, so you, you mentioned that the first time that you worked with her, it was fairly brief in the rehearsal room. I've, I feel like that's something that um, Joni fans are, are curious about is, you know, what is what is she like in the rehearsal process? Is You know, is she she's one of those people who I think sometimes her music is perceived as being serious, but I imagine her to be a really fun person to be around, um, you know? So what, what is she like to be around when you're rehearsing the show? She's pretty light. Um, but the thing you, you have to realize is she's in ridiculously smart. <laughs> yeah. And knows her music backwards and forwards. And so if, you, if you're getting the essence of the music correctly, then, then there's no problems at all. And she wants you to, to find your own sound within it and, and create and, and be, um, you know, invested with your own thing in it. But, you know, like any consummate artist, she, she knows what she wants at the same time. So she, she expresses, you know, in very interesting terms, not always musical, you know. You know, sometimes you know needs to be greener. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, just just in in ways that she's she's very articulate, but in, in a very artistic way, so that um, she she definitely will instruct where she wants things to go and how she perceives things. But she loves the fact that an individual bring their own creativity to it at the same time, and that's why she surrounds herself with, you know, in general, some pretty interesting people. Well, yeah, and she she seems to have, you know, especially from really from the 80s on, she seems to have surrounded herself primarily with jazz players and seems more comfortable in that um, arena in terms of, the, I, I think actually kind of what you were getting to is one of the also kind of primary questions that I had for you, which was, you know, for somebody whose music is so intricate you know i mean her music is not nearly as dissectable as you know it's not one four five the whole way through basically and so it's that question of you know does she like you to have your bursts of your own thoughts throughout the whole thing um or does she kind of dictate to you okay here's the fill that you're gonna play um you know how does how does that whole process work for her there's there's i don't recall ever being told Play this. Okay. Um, I think that on the on the keyboard gig, the first gig I had when I was doing the Lyle job, <laughs> I, I basically just knew that I had to do what Lyle had done, and I had to at least cover that. And if there was any room for for Mark Eichen to poke his head through, then that would be fine. But it cannot be at the expense of what Lyle had created. He had recorded the album. I had seen them live before, and, and so there was a very sense of complete sense of what that universe that he had created on that body of material was. And uh, and so there was very little discussion about what, what had to be done because it, it had been set forth. You know, the, the album was out, the, the concerts had been done, this was simply a recreation. Sure. With my my handling that job and, and some room for me to do it my way, and obviously because I can't be Lyle, um, I would be Mark, but there's a job to be done there. Um, when I came in as a trumpet player, it was more, we really like you. We like your sensibility. We like what you want to do. And I was brought in um, to, to do that. And, and so on the recordings, of course, you're discovering what that is and how your sound fits into her songs. Sure. And then later on, I had the great honor to sort of do the Wayne Shorter role live. 
when Wayne couldn't do the gigs, I, I would come out and be that solo voice. Sure. And uh, in that case, it's again, it's a case of uh, we like you. We like your minimalism. We like your sound. We like your your melodic sense. And just as long as you're being you, we're going to be happy. <laughs> well, and when I say and I when I see say we at this point, it's Larry. Larry is at this point is is, is acting as her producer and and arranger and, and has a very strong. Uh, has taken over sort of the musical director hat. Sure. And, and is leading the, the band. Yeah. Well, and there is something to, you know, I mean, that's the best. It, it's not even just the music world, but, you know, if you hire the best people, your primary function is to kind of let them be them and kind of get out of their way, you know, like let them do what you hired them to do, right? So, you know, if you're hiring the best people, um, it's easier to do that. So, and I'm sure Joni Mitchell, you know, especially at that stage in her career, had her pick of whoever she wanted to. There's really nobody who's going to say no to working with Joni Mitchell. So, you know, what a compliment to to get that call and it, say, "We want you." It certainly was. It's it's one of the highlights of my career. I, I was so 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 pleased to to get that call uh, and to maintain the relationship for a number of years with her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And really, and you're totally you're totally right on. I mean, and I think that's why she sort of <clears throat> moved. Well, even even in her mid period there, she was working with you know Tom Scott and John Guerin, and I mean these aren't slouches. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're more studio musicians than, than real jazz musicians, but they have a background in, in pretty much any genre, and, and she's always surrounded herself with very very strong players. Because I think she rec- must have recognized early on that you know I have if I get the best then I can just I can let them and I cast it. It's a, it's a matter of casting, you know. It's like it's like a good film caster, you know, casting director. You pick the right people and you put the right people together, and really some magic can happen. Right. Right. I'm I'm wondering if you would speak to something that you said. This actually isn't necessarily even specific specifically to Joni, and I'm not sure if this is something that you ever really consciously think about or if your playing is so natural that it just kind of happens the way it happens. But you you referenced uh minimalism in your playing, which is something that I think um is that's something that, you know, I as a musician, I struggle with, you know, when it's when it's my turn to solo, I tend to overfill. And it's something that over the last three or four years, I've made a more conscious effort. You know, silence is a good thing. Silence is important. And those picking your spot. Do you have a specific kind of philosophy to that? Or is it just kind of who you are and the way you play? I think it came out of um, being attracted to Miles Davis as my first main um, soloistic mentor, as it were. Sure. Um, and the sense that, that somewhat comparatively he tends to be a little more minimal than, than a lot of other players. But there are certainly plenty of bow solos where he's playing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Know? So it, it's, it's a sensibility of, of using large amounts of notes as an effect and not just sort of a constant solution, right? And, and being able to play two notes then one note and then not play and then play 47 notes you know and, and sort of a balance and I think it's very important and I think one of the reasons she went to Wayne Shorter of course is because he you know and his relationship with Miles I think you see that coming into Wayne Shorter's approach as well so that by the time he's with Weather Report and the single <clears throat> sort of main featured voice you hear that in his playing as well 
this sort of approach really works well when you're playing with a singer. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. You can't, you can't just warble on and on and on and be, if you're the horn player in a singer's band. <laughs> right. You know, and, and so Wayne, you know, with that just unbelievably beautiful sense of, of melody and, and just the right one note to play here and there, was such a tremendous, uh, you know, sound for her. And, uh, and when I heard that and then was asked to sort of be an additional role like that, it was just, it felt very natural to me because those were the, you know, Miles and Wayne were the two guys that I had, had really studied and emulated. If there's any school that I put myself through, it was the Miles and Wayne school. You know, I transcribed their solos and listened to their, <clears throat> their approaches and emulated their the density and the, and the minimalism of, of their playing because it was so attractive to me and I felt it was so, um, you know, part of, of the way I felt music should be. And it just happened to, I think, fit really, really well with her and the sophistication of her music, but also just as if you're that backing conversational voice with a singer, you have to be able to judge when and where you know, to be there and when to not be there. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's interesting because actually the last episode that I did of this podcast, um, quite often what we do is we take a look at a specific record. For for people who've you know worked with Joni, we do kind of a more freewheeling conversation uh, for pretty obvious reasons. But so the last episode that I did was with uh, somebody on the Taming the Tiger record, at which which you know there are so many moments on there where you know the brass instruments sound like a voice you know the way that they're used it's it's so airy and it's so um almost in the same timbre at that point that Joni was singing in and it just sounded like her it was it was such a cool thing you know um so the projects that you worked with Joni on can you give me a rundown of what those are, just again for the listeners who don't know what what records did you play on, and you know, kind of what what tours did you do with Joni? Well, I did the one outdoor concert in L.A. when we played Shadows and Light uh, as a keyboard player, and that would have been in the late '80s, I think. Okay. Um, and then I'm going to have to actually sort of look this up I, because sure. I went in on the orchestral records, right, um, and played on those and I forget the name of those but I remember you know um, right so now was the first one and, yep and Wayne played on that song but there was other songs that I played on Kenny Wheeler did the second orchestral record oh sure Travelogue yeah but then I came back and started working in LA with her I think I did Taming the Tiger but I played that band the one with Brian Blade and Greg Least and Larry uh -huh. I played a lot with that band. We did a lot of... I did a show, an HBO special with her. Right. That painting that with words and music. That is an amazing show. Yeah. That's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's really something. And I did that I did that big tribute at, at Madison Square Garden to her, too. Oh, yeah. Where Elton John and Cindy Lauper and a bunch of people showed up. and uh, I played on that. That was quite an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, that is a cool show. That's the one that was broadcast on TV, right? Yeah. Because there were a couple different ones, but I think that was the one that they, you know, like you said, Elton was there and James Taylor and all sorts of people. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that painting with words and music, 
uh, is such an incredible show and such an incredible band, um, you know, that it, it looks like such a small, intimate audience. And, you know, what a lucky audience, because that seems like just, you know, when do you get to see that caliber of musicianship and be that close to you guys? You know, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a remarkable experience. And uh, I think we ended with our big orchestra coming out doing both sides now. Oh, yeah. In terms of something like Taming the Tiger, where you were kind of, the songs were being created there, you know, they were new songs, versus, you know, a concert where you're playing the old hits and all of that. Um, Do you feel like there's any distinct difference in the way that Joni approaches those songs, or is it primarily the same in terms of, like, what your job is in that song? No, it's much more experimental when when you're doing it for the first time. Sure. there's, There's no known solution. (laughs) <laughs> you, you try stuff you know um, I remember I think we were recording at her house actually and just in a very small little intimate setting just in a room off the kitchen somewhere um, and you just you know let's try it with the mute no, try it without the mute you know just come in earlier let's see what that feels I mean really just sort of um, let's let's see what it what how the music uh, unfolds with that voice and where the voice fits what it should do and it's a exploratory process for everyone sure um i've asked some of the other guests that i've had on here who of course actually know Joni. um have you have you seen her lately with you know have you seen her basically since she had her um her aneurysm you know i'm I'm always looking to hear how she's doing and how things are going have you encountered her i have not i have not i'll be honest with you no I, i haven't seen her and i haven't really heard how she's doing mm. she's starting to make a few more um public appearances you see you know pictures of her out and about she went to the taping of a tv show you know kathy bates was doing a tv show and they must know each other so she went there um i had a conversation with one of her biographers who said that uh, the day leonard cohen died she played at her piano for two hours he had mm. he knew that so it's good i i just keep hoping to hear that you know things are going well and that she's feeling good so um so outside of your work with Joni you've you know you've worked with a broad range of other people as well as of course your own work um which I'd like to get to but in terms of other folks that you've played with you've you know made something like five records with Van Morrison you've played with Bruce Springsteen what are some of the projects that you feel particularly proud to be associated with I assume Joni is on that list but besides Joni well Joni's definitely you know on the top of that list to be honest with you I mean my experience with Van is is been quite wonderful too and I'm, I'm I have come out of the five or six years of being playing with Van as, as friends with him we still keep in touch and we have you know lunch a couple times a year and I, I worked with him steadily for five or six years I think we did five or six records that I played with him and uh, and really I think a very very exciting time for him he you know he I joined and he, he just done Into the Music and uh, so I joined for that tour uh, and uh, brought Pee Wee Ellis into the band and Pee Wee of course started a lifelong relationship with Van based on that. And uh, we went into that whole period when he was, when I started playing keyboards with him and sort of a little bit of that, you know, uh, the same thing that Lyle sort of brought to Joni, I was bringing to Van during that period in the, in the late 70s, uh, a little more of an 
atmospheric, a little bit of an ambient uh, sound. Uh, in fact, I would go to Van's house and we would listen to a lot of music. He was very into Brian Eno and a lot of that experimental ambient music of that period. And in fact, he and I did some duo concerts together, just the two of us. Really? Him playing Fender Rhodes and me playing uh, synthesizers. Wow. He was experimenting with this. And uh, the record Common One was sort of his, um, what came out of all of that, although that was the full band. And there's some more straight ahead uh, material on that record, but there are some very sort of ambient pieces as well on there. So he was really interested in that, and, and I felt that I was a, uh, you know, a real assistance to him because it was of interest to me, and I could bring some of those ideas that I was learning about into the band. And we would have kept going if he hadn't sort of decided to, oh, I want to go back to R&B. <laughs> oh, sure. And I think in the, in the mid-'80s, he said, I want, I want to make an R&B record. And I had made my first solo record by that time, and I'd made a, a, scored my first film score, and I, I just the idea of going back and playing rhythm and blues trumpet was just not something that I felt was the best thing for me career-wise. So I just politely left the band. And he understood, and like I said, we've remained friends. Uh, I go sit in with him occasionally. It's really a blast. I mean, Van is, you know, he, like Joni, he's, he's one of those geniuses that you just, it's just an honor to be around them and, and watch them work and be a part of their process and, and be a part of the results because it's, it's, it's of another cloth. <laughs> yeah. It really is some spectacular, spectacular thing to, to be a part of. So you weren't a part of that tour that Joni did with Van Morrison and Bob Dylan in the late 90s, were you? I was not, but I crashed it one night and sat in with Van. Oh, okay. <laughs> I remember that. And I remember seeing Larry. Larry was playing with, with Joni and saw Larry backstage. <laughs> it was fun. It was like you know, a meeting of, the, of two of my most favorite experiences yeah that that just i mean that is you know that's a triple bill for the ages right there that is unbelievable yeah, absolutely that that absolutely. happened um yeah and any other projects any other folks that you've worked with i do want to get to your you know to your music as well but any other folks that you worked with that you kind of look back specifically fondly and go that was just really amazing well the Springsteen experience was was pretty great and uh I mean, he's another one of those sort of iconic guys, and you meet these people and you realize why they're so great, because they really are just a, sort of another class of human being. I mean, he, he's just a remarkable fellow and, and so unbelievably talented, and, and he is, was just gracious and, and a joy to work with. He, he had heard a, a film score of mine that I had uh, done with Marianne Faithful and had loved the way I had arranged this song for Marianne and wanted that. He said, I want you to do for me what you did for me. <laughs> so he had already built a track that was very much in that style, so I didn't really have to do much of anything. I just I came in and played some trumpet and brought a, a drummer in. Nice. And uh, did a few things, but it was, uh, that was, I mean, it couldn't be more complimentary to have someone of that stature say, I want you to be you on my record. So. Oh, yeah. Wonderful experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of your um, solo work as well as your film scoring. I Film scoring, your list of projects that you've worked on is uh, pretty insane. You've, you've scored a lot of movies. <laughs> how, many, <laughs> how many film scores have you done at this point? It's in the hundreds, yeah. isn't it? 
it is in the hundreds. I when it passed a hundred, I mean, I'd never kept track to begin with, right. and I thought maybe I'd done fifty or sixty films, and then somebody asked that question, and I said, well, I don't, I don't know, maybe fifty, fifty-five films, and then they said, no, you've done one hundred and four films. I said, no, you're kidding me. I can't believe, and I, I just don't keep track, but it is over a hundred for sure, and, and uh, it's, I don't know. I just love it. Uh, you know, the thing about film scoring for me is that it's an opportunity to create a new little world of music you yeah know, every film potentially could have its unique musical identity and i think part of my challenge and job is to find that unique identity that really fits the film and the more unique and interesting and well made the film is i think the more opportunity you have to really complement the film in a really unique and, and wonderful way consequently i just learned so much about music every every film score is this I wonder if this will work. I wonder if I could do this and this and this. Oh my God, it does work. Or, no, that's really terrible. Let's find something else. But you, I learned something, you know? Yeah. And I think that um, it, it pushes me. You know, the music, the language of music is just, that sometimes, you know, you start to feel, oh, there's only 12 notes. And it's, oh, it's, it's, it's a finite little box and I don't know what to do anymore. Well, it's not true. Somehow, just the magic of, music is that it seems to be just infinite. You can just make something new anytime you want. Yeah. I think film I think film really pulls that out of a, of a composer, really demands that they, they stretch and find what those new those new things are. Sure. How did um how did that come to be? How did that first film score come to be? Do you remember was that a job that you sought out? Was it somebody heard your music and thought it would be a good fit for Film scoring. How did that first one come to be? It it was the latter. It was not a profession that I, that I really um, wanted. I I was bound and determined to be the next sort of purveyor of a band like Weather Report. I wanted to take what I had learned from Weather Report, Miles Davis, and to be the trumpet-led modern version of Weather Report with a little more sort of new wave, you know, rock edge to it, but but instrumental and, and minimal, but the world and I mean I had this vision and it was group 87 I don't know if you're familiar with that band, oh sure that was yeah the culmination of that vision was was in group 87 and I was feverishly working on that uh, on that project and uh, touring and making those records with those guys <clears throat> and but at the same time you know my background was in much more avant-garde sort of European jazz and I was making records for ECM uh, in that acoustic format with Art Landy that fabulous piano player and uh, I had made some art um, Manfred Eicher the uh, head of ECM the jazz label started a classical label called the new music series and I got inspired by that um, and made a record or a demo I should say I think three tracks with a friend of mine who was a Chinese uh, traditional Chinese instrumentalist played all the flutes and the percussion and we made a record together of his instruments with electronics and thought it would be a really wonderful fusion record for the new music series. And uh, Manfred was very polite and declined the record and said, no, it's not, not right for us. Um, so what, what do you do, you know, like any proper musician, you, you take, <laughs> take the last $200 out of your, this is many years ago now, out of your banking account, buy a cassette duplicating machine and, and duplicate 100% and set them out to all your friends and people. You know, 
you promote. You let people know what you're doing, and you just keep keep going uh, in spite of the rejection. So one of these cassettes of this music made its way into the hands of a graphic artist, and that graphic artist happened to be have it on when a film director came to his house to look at some of the art he was preparing for the posters for the film, and the director said, what is that? That sounds like what I need for my film. It was really that just sort of, you know, synchronistic. Yeah, it's <laughs> classic right place at the right time. Exactly, you know. Uh, and he approached me, and he I demoed for him, and at the end of the demos he said, look, you know, the studio's going to think I'm nuts, but I want you to score this film. The studio thought he was nuts, but I was very cheap. Sure. <laughs> and I didn't wipe out. I didn't blow it. I worked my butt off, and... Uh, Four months, I came up with a score that, uh, actually, I listened to it the other day. It sounds pretty good. For, for a guy who really didn't know what he was doing, it, it just stood the test of time. Right. Was that was that Never Cry Wolf? Is that the first one? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Never Cry Wolf. So that... it's really, it's Carol Ballard's fault. I mean, he was the one. <laughs> he was the one that heard that music and, and said, you know, this this kid is, has got something. It fits my film. I'm willing to put in the time and the effort to work with him and sit with him and tell him when he's good and when he's not good and... and shape it and work with him and uh he made me into a film composer really well that's amazing and i mean it's led to all sorts of things multiple grammy nominations an academy award nomination um you know a, a lot of amazing amazing work um so one of the other po- i actually hope I host two podcasts, and the other one happens to be about Meryl Streep. And you uh, scored one of her films. You scored Lions for Lambs. Um, I did, yeah. Do you remember anything specific about that particular experience that I can drop into that podcast, basically? Uh, well, I came to that project because of Robert Redford. I, I scored a number of films for, for Robert. And uh, and so that, that was the period when, when he just came to me first foremost and uh, so when he was doing that uh, I was his choice and it was a a wonderful experience I thought it was a a remarkable film Uh, it's actually based on a play and uh, you know three very very fascinating characters played by three very distinct actors Meryl of course being one of them I did have I presented some uh, an award one of the uh, off-camera awards for best foreign film an academy gathering once and uh meryl was there she was a presenter as well and so i just audaciously went up and introduced myself and said uh you know that i scored her I mean, she's, and she was just the most delightful person and we, we chatted because i had made some reference to robert altman having worked with him a lot oh sure so she she loved robert as well and so we had a nice chat about bob altman and just that's my meryl street story she was she was just delightful and, pleasure to have met her that's great that's great so what do you have coming up what are you working on right now i am working on a really fascinating project it is it is the story of buddy bolden and buddy bolden um could arguably be called the father of jazz music oh okay he predates louis armstrong and predates uh really recordings um there may have been one recording made of him, but it's never been found, so there's no known recordings of this guy. But the history says that he was the guy who was the first one to sort of put into the society bands of New Orleans at the 
turn of the century, this, this sense of blues and sense of uh, what has become, you know, jazz music, and perhaps could then be considered the father of American popular music because he was the would have been the one that said we can take these European sort of songs and quadrilles and little dance things and we can put blues into that and it can be something else and it can be something infectious and people can dance to it and it can be in nightclubs and he was sort of the father of that and so there's a interesting argument to be made that he could be the father of the entire cultural revolution in America and nobody knows his name and of course there's so little that, of, of sort of factual evidence that it's, it's a lot of uh, conjecture but it's a fantastic story and this film has been developed for a long, long time by this gentleman named Dan Pritzker. And uh, he got Wynton Marsalis to do all of the uh, jazz music and come up and do the Buddy Bolden trumpet playing and, and actually do the Louis Armstrong, because Louis Armstrong is a character in the film. And then he got me to do the score. So nice. it's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful film, and we're just in the, in the last uh, few weeks of production on that. Nice. Okay, so that'll be out maybe next year then if it's being wrapped up this year. I think it's I shooting for the Venice Film Festival premiere. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but in terms of, of uh, actual public distribution, I don't know yet, but it could be next year. Nice. Nice. What about your... Um, any Anything new coming down the pike in terms of your own putting out new records or anything like that? Well... It, that's been an interesting journey for me. I, I sort of got discouraged with the with the state of instrumental music and jazz in, in the world, and didn't quite know where I fit into it. So I sort of um, the last project that I was touring was a tribute to Miles, which was reasonably successful. And we toured all over the world with that, uh, sort of showcasing the Silent Way days, Bitches Brew days of his music. Um, and I had a couple of projects since then. I have a jazz EP out now that I just put out last year. Nice. Because I wanted to sort of test the waters again. Uh-huh. And uh, I can make sure that my office sends it to you so you can actually hear what it is and see if it's relevant. To yeah, that'd be great. What you're doing. Um, and I'm sort of, like I say, I'm putting my toe back in the water. I want to see what, how where I might fit into the world of instrumental music these days. Um, I'm, I've always been a big electronica guy. You know, I have a vast collection of, of analog synthesizers and love all that world. And I know that that world has taken a big step forward in popularity. And, and so I have a couple of album projects based on that music that are sort of percolating, you know, four or five tracks here and there. It's a question of marketing and, and how to sort of figure out how to sell music these days so yeah. we're looking at just trying to figure it out like everybody else figuring out how Spotify works and how if you can make a living in any of these ways anymore right and um, you know I'm not of uh, I'm at the point in my life where I don't necessarily want to get in the station wagon for 50 weeks a year sure drive all over the world uh, so I have to have another solution other than that although I do love performing and I want to perform again so it's we're in the exploratory stage. Yeah. Definitely, definitely the toes are wet. I'm, uh, I'm excited to jump in full, but I want to figure out exactly where. That's great. So I live in the Twin Cities. Um, do you ever come up and play at the Dakota Jazz Club? I imagine that's a room that you've at some point been in. 
I think so. Yeah, that name is very familiar, and I know I've played out there before. So it's yeah. I mean, this, this is the sort of thing where I have to sort of pull the old lists out and see who, see what what uh, venues are still operating and still fun and still uh, you know hot to play in. And, yeah, the Dakota is one. Keep that on your list. Yeah. The Dakota and the Twin right, Cities because it's <laughs> it's it's thriving you know it's one of the few i think jazz clubs it's uh seems to be doing well you know seven nights a week it's and packing in they'll get they'll get you know next week terrence blanchard's there he'll be there for you know two three nights instead of playing it's a 250 seat club and he could probably play a 500 seat theater one night but people like playing at this place a couple nights a smaller room a couple nights just because they treat you so well and it's you know, great sound and all the things you want as a performer. So, plus it's nice yeah. to get to stay in one place for more than one night, you know, when you can. So, um, I totally agree with all of that. It's, I would much rather do a 200 seat theater three nights than, than a thousand. Seat, yeah. You know? Yeah. So that would it's, be. It's, it's, most of this music, you know, that I'm involved in and like Terrence is, you know, you want a certain intimacy. You want to be able to, to know that you're talking to people and communicating any venue where you start to lose contact to sort of a sense of the personal relationship with an audience, it just gets harder. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, blocking some time off. I know you're an extraordinarily busy person, so I appreciate you being willing to talk about your experiences with, with Joni. Um, yeah, I'm I'm hoping there's more music at some point from Joni. I know that's a tall order because I think even before her aneurysm, I think she was kind of frustrated with the music industry. Uh, that's just yeah. conjecture based on her interviews, but um, I'm not sure we were likely necessarily to get more music, but I just keep hoping that she's inspired to, to, to do a little bit more, and I hope when she does it, she can involve you because I think uh, you guys had a great partnership. Well, we did, and I was certainly an honor and a, and a tremendous learning experience certainly be a fabulous gift to the world if she if she could could create some more music it would be it's, it's sort of needed in this day and age i think i think so too i think so too so well thank you again so much i really appreciate you taking the time it's my pleasure it's uh, it's great fun to reminisce about the stuff and talk about some of the favorite points of my life